welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today we'll hear a Q&A with artist Matthew Barney about his latest work, Redoubt, moderated by author Maggie Nelson. This conversation was recorded at Landmark's New Art Theatre during its opening weekend. Hi everybody. Hi Matthew. Hi. This is like a nightmare where, I mean it's like a dream, but whenever I see, I really, really love this movie, and I feel like the nightmare part is having to talk about something right after you see something that you love so much. So maybe you guys feel that way too, but I'm also very excited to be here to do it because I love this movie, and um, so anyway, um, thanks Matthew for being here. Thank you for being here. Yeah. I mean, I had written down questions earlier today and then seen, I had seen this movie, I don't know what, a year and a half ago or something, and uh, now I feel overwhelmed by a whole new questions, but I had remembered ever since I saw it, I'd been thinking about this last scene for, you know, like a lot, like it comes back to me a lot, and so it was amazing to see it again, so I figure since we just saw it, maybe we could just start there in that, um, uh, I mean, I know that Eleanor Bauer, who's the you guys now saw in the credits, so maybe you'll be with me with the naming of the people, but the, um, the calling virgin, <laughs> um, who's the darker haired of the two attendants of Diana the Huntress. Um, uh, so I know Eleanor Bauer did a lot of the choreography, but I also know that KJ Holmes, who's uh, the electro plater, uh, uh, who's dancing in that last piece while the wolves are you know, ransacking the trailer, um, is also a very, uh, legendary and formidable improviser. And it just made me think about, um, you know, the choreography throughout the whole movie and whether or not, so Eleanor did, uh, it says, you know, it says choreography and then I wonder just what was the interplay between improvisation and what Eleanor's ideas were about what their bodies were gonna be doing, you know? And, and I guess in that last piece in particular, what, I mean, you can see that KJ is, is uh, revisiting a lot of the things from the movement so far, but right, and I think that was the that was the idea that we we spoke about was that um, that that character, the, the electroplater, would be a kind of a synthesizer mm-hmm. of the narrative, and um, that would happen throughout the film with the plates, and then at the end it would happen in a a more explicit way, and um, and so. The idea was to, like, knowing how strong KJ is at improvisation, was to sit her down in front of the dailies and 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 have her watch everything that we had shot up to that point because we we filmed this scene later, mm-hmm. months uh, a couple of months later than all the other material. So um, she was able to look at what happened in all the other movement scenes, and um, and then we set up a kind of. Um, a, a kind of a grid for her where um, there were, um, I believe, six or seven points where she would um, go into that um, position with one hand on the ground and one hand to the sky. And, um, and then between that, she was really free to, to kind of um, uh, translate the, the the whole story in that way, and she and she never did it the same twice. So it was quite challenging to edit, but exciting to watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first time I saw this film, I was so surprised and 
had so much suspense to see what it was going to hold in it. And then this time, I think the the what you're describing, especially with her character synthesizing, it was so much clearer to me how much synthesis there was going on and how much work she was doing with, you know, being brought back the missives, uh, you know, from the wild and, and holding uh, so many things together. And I guess, um, I mean, just on a kind of technical level, besides my overwhelming question, which is where in the hell do you get that great, great camouflage? <laughs> because the, the camouflage that Diana's wearing is so amazing. But on a very technical, uh, you know, just kind of like level, I was reading that um, today that your first thought was that due to your kind of long-standing interest in wolf hunting, and we can maybe get into later, you know, the issues in that in particular in, in, in reintroducing wolves into the wild in Idaho, but um, that you first thought that maybe you would film yourself doing a wolf hunt, but then you quickly realized that the uh, equipment would scare off the wolves, and so you wrote a script instead, but I was thinking about all the challenges, um, obviously, in the landscape, and you said somewhere, low temperature and waist-deep snow became more significant factors and the more compelling questions were to do with how the dance vocabulary that Eleanor had established could be drawn out of such restrained movement within these extreme physical conditions. And you said you found that tension productive, which did not surprise me. Um, but I wonder, is that is that um, drawn out of such restrained movement within extreme physical conditions like a euphemism for it was really, really hard? Or was it, <laughs> was it like fun to? Um, well, I mean, as you were speaking about the, the, the kind of original proposal, yeah. um, which was to go out with a hunting outfitter and to foreground um, a hunt, an actual hunt, and to, um, um, to put um, the narrative piece in the background, or vice versa, and um, and so the the hunting outfitter was willing to try it, but um, eventually we decided it was just it was really just not going to be possible to do that with the with the amount of uh, crew we needed, and um, and just how difficult it is to track wolves. So as you said, we 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 did move away from what was starting to be like a drawing restraint for me, I think, in in the beginning, and. Um, and then somehow with all the snowfall that came that winter, it was a very extreme winter in that area, and, um, and there was so much snow depth that it, that it kind of came back around to being uh, like a drawing restraint in, in the sense of movement. And, um, and I think it was, it was exciting for, for me for sure, but also I think really exciting for Eleanor and, and for the other performers in the sense that it, it took care of some of the, um, I think, the, the worries that that, um, that, that they had, we had, about, um, about a dance vocabulary that would go too deep into um, um, a kind of an understood right. form of dance. And, and I think uh, the, the, the more interesting challenge, I think, was to say, okay, what, what is it, what happens in a hunt, you know, like in terms of movement, very little, you know, there's a lot of sitting around and waiting and being very silent and listening and watching and not very dynamic stuff in terms of movement. So we were trying to distill some of those um, dynamics into a, into a vocabulary. And I think that the, that the snow suddenly then became um, 
a way of um, allowing those the, the bodies to be more dynamic without it becoming too dancerly. And um, I think that was. Yeah, did you did you do you think of it as in a in a, in a canon of movies of dance movies or 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 did you? I mean, obviously, dance is notoriously hard. I mean, you've done a lot of dance in movies, but like this is different in that. Um, uh, just like you just said, it, it seems like one of its whole... I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it seems like, to me, a great dance movie in the sense that it, every single thing that happens can be read as dance, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to the dance being isolated. It's like, now they're dancing, you know, but right. everything. You know? Right. Um, did you think of it that way? Or yeah, it, definitely. Yeah. And I think after doing River of Fundament, where the music sort of did that, where the, like, the music was kind of coming out of every... Uh, little nuance in the scene that we did talk about dance working that way that it wouldn't just be these sort of scenes which were more explicitly about dance but the the firearm work and the engraving and all of these uh, you know snowshoeing and, and anything that's really had to do with movement could be a part of that idea and um, um, yeah that was the intention I thought maybe we could talk for a minute just because I'd never heard the word redoubt before uh, being introduced to it by your film. I don't know if other people are familiar with it either, but I mean, the dictionary definition of it is like a place of retreat and referring to kind of a fort or a defensive military formation. But there's also, um, I guess, the American redoubt, which is a, a, the dubbed name of a movement, I guess not that old. I was reading today, 2011, um, that was kind of the, the call was kind of put out, but to, for people to come out to sparsely populated areas of the um, American West and prepare for civilizational collapse, I guess. And um, and uh, I guess I don't think that it, you know, I don't. I know you don't like to, and I wouldn't want to hammer out. Uh, you know, the relationship between this kind of, um, uh, between the title and the, you know, so-called meaning in the movie, but I just do wonder um, when you heard of the word and when you thought the title seemed, um, when you thought the title seemed right for it and if you know why. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it was fairly recent for me too. I, 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 in fact, it was reading about that movement mm -hmm. um, where I first encountered that word and, um, and I guess in the way that it was both describing a place, um, an isolated place, mm -hmm. and also a kind of a condition where um, a sort of marginal set of ideas are are, are being called, and I, I redoubt in a way, uh, it, it appealed to me that um, that it was both a sort of ice. It was, it was both isolated from the inside out and from the outside in, and, and I think. Um, Having grown up in Idaho, that area felt that way to me. I think it felt um, surrounded by mountains and and like a fortress in a way. And um, and and in my experience there in the 70s and 80s as a as a young person, that it sort of felt very isolated from every other place in the in the country that I might have wanted to be. And um, and so. Um, I thought, um, yeah, it appealed to me, and, and I was aware that it would be a risk to use that mm -hmm. word, I think, because it's especially because in its, 
because relationship of to the, I guess, James Wesley Rawls, I guess is his name, the guy who made the call, because of its relationship to that call. To the, the kind politics, of, yeah, yeah. the politics of it, yeah. Yeah, and there was, I mean, yeah. there was so much of that yeah. in Idaho, yeah. growing up, the, especially in the North, and so, um, in, in, in whatever way this piece is a portrait of that area, which I do consider it, um, I did want to let that in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because he describes the call out for the community of survivalists that it'll be basically like a bunch of pistol-packing Amish. And I thought that, I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't know when it occurred to you to cast um, a real sharpshooter and gun rights advocate as as Diana um, as you have, but I I mean obviously that's you know you you get that in there, but what you also get is um, I mean I keep hearing the word redoubt, I keep thinking like a verb like a call to doubt again, you know, and a call and a call to kind of be in paradox or ambivalence kind of again and again about about a lot of things in the movie, and I guess one of them which is partly why I think it's so fascinating is, um, you know, how you place, I guess, via the electroplating art, or even, but even, I mean, the electroplating most obviously and the easel and stuff, but also, I mean, one of my very favorite moments is when your character just pulls out the, like, moleskin notebook at the bar and is, like, sketching, you know, with the coffee at the, and, but just this kind of, um, uh, I guess, I guess why I say ambivalence is that there's a kind of sense in which, um, uh, there's a kind of sense in which, uh, and, and obviously, like you're kind of you're gesturing to it with the easel and stuff. But there's a sense that you know the kind of true work of hunting or skinning or working with your hands or working the land, you know, would be distinct from this other work. But it seems like over and over again, part of my redoubt is just re, uh, my not knowing over and over again, like where art, what art, what kind of work art is, you know, in the movie. And I wonder if that was in in your mind as well. Um, I mean, I think I follow you. I think the... the that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's coming to mind for me is this, the, um, the way that people are doing their jobs. These characters are, are and especially the, the kind of, like the bureaucratic nature of the engraver in a way, that he's sort of, he's just going out and doing his job. Um, and... Um, that uh, that in a way the art making is part of that. It doesn't have the, the maybe the kind of intention that that art making tends to have actually. Um, and um, and I guess I wanted to you know fold that aspect of the story into this idea of um, management, you know, land management and and um, how um, people work in areas like that and. Um, um, and for example, I think to uh, to have the cougar be shot in the tree was a sort of aspect of that in a way that it that it um, that it doesn't really have a um, a reason, yeah. but it might right. be a bureaucratic reason, or right. a, yeah. it might be he might have been sent out to do that. It might have been right. his job to do that that day. Yeah. Sort of, we don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the very beautiful book that accompanies this film and the associated objects, um, 
you have some information about the introduction of wolves back into the wilderness and about how controversial that was and how I think someone was calling, some people were calling them uh, government-sponsored terrorists, the wolves <laughs> themselves, because of their killing, uh, the presumption that they were killing elk that people wanted to hunt. But I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that what I thought was so fascinating is that in one of the essays in there, um, to figure out if the wolves really were responsible for it, people were going, you know, their job was to go out and like set up cameras or, you know, wait at night and watch to see what the wolves were really doing and to, and then to, as in the film, um, when dead elk or dead animal, animals were found to see if they were killed by wolves or not. And I guess just kind of having read all that and then seeing the film again, it really, it really does double in the sense that yes, we might call it, you know, land management or, you know, uh, you know, being a biologist or different things, but really the job is to go out and observe nature and to sketch it and to write things down, and that's precisely what your engraver character is up to, you know, mm -hmm. and killing, as you say, on, <laughs> on occasion. Yeah, and, and in that way, possessing in a way. That was another right. way I was sort of thinking about how the, the kind of... Um, uh, art making or, or image taking in, in the, the piece would function. That it um, that it's I think something that I think about as an artist, and I think other artists do too. That you know the, the extent to w which you possess your your subject matter and um, and what it means to go out and um, observe something and draw it and. Um, um, <clears throat> I mean that's a lot of that's a lot of land to possess. I mean you can I mean it's amazing because I think again with the kind of paradox feeling, I can feel your control over the material of the footage of this landscape and that yet at the same time you're showcasing over and over again its vastness and and uh, out of reachness, you know, and 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 the smallness of all your characters in it, you know. Um, I wonder a little bit about the um, uh, about your hoop dancer, <laughs> and I think it's really fascinating how she's the only. I mean, the kind of stereotypical uh, association of Native American with the wilderness, but she's the only one in the town and in the American Legion, which is like a patriotic veterans organization. And I just wonder how you decided, I guess. Um, on her place, you know, that, that she would be at the American Legion, or like, did you have, was it just the image of it, that came, or you wanted her to be in some place interior, kind of echoing with her um, gestures, what was happening outside? Um, well, I think the, I mean, I think the way an American Legion Hall functions in a little town like that is that it, it's sort of, you can rent it to do your rehearsal, you can rent it to have a dance, you could rent it to, you know, it's sort of the, the space to sort of do whatever. And, I, and so I, I kind of wanted to normalize what she was doing in every way that I could. And, and I wanted it to be um, a rehearsal that she was doing. And, um, and so intentionally we put the headphones on and made her, her soundtrack inaudible. Um, and, um, I guess it, what I didn't want to do was to sort of put her out in, um, um, I mean, it, 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 felt, it felt dangerous to put her out in, in the landscape, actually, and I kind of wanted to, to um, 
let the, um, her dance be uh, in her own space in that way. Um, but that said, I think that there's something interesting about hoop dance um, you know, compared to other forms um, of Native American dance, that hoop dance is, is quite recent and it, and it doesn't really belong to any nation. It's, it's, a, it's often hybridized with hip hop or hybridized with other forms of, of uh, music and um, uh, performed at powwows. Um, and um, so it felt like um, a, a dance that could be uh, easily uh, hybridized into, into what we were working on. And, and I found Sandra um, by looking for a dancer who, who was both um, working in uh, contemporary dance and also um, native forms. And, um, and so she um, you know, was quite interested in, in taking it in several different directions at once. Did it take a lot of convincing to get uh, Annette to do the the sharpshooting role? I mean, the Diana role. Um, no, I think no. she was. She was game. She was game. game. I mean, yeah. she's she does not perform or has not performed before, but she has a an online presence. As I think a lot of the target shooters do, they have these um, YouTube channels and. Yeah. Um, um, so in a way, she's you know I think she's used to it. Yeah. yeah, she's amazing. And then, just out of curiosity, had Eleanor ever done anything like the, that hanging from the tree before? Was she did, had she done that kind of climbing? No, no we set it? up we set up a, a trunk in the in my studio and and rehearsed, and rehearsed in that way. Yeah. She learned with an arborist. And, yeah. yeah. So amazing. I have a lot of questions that are like really in the weeds about wilderness and about this essay that Matthew sent me, but I think it's like probably getting <laughs> later and we can, we're going to pick that up at a different point, I think, okay. between us. But do you think we should, do you want to take any questions from the sure. audience? Yeah, yeah. yeah that... Um, He'd asked me to repeat the question, but oh. I actually couldn't quite hear it. Do you, uh, you want him to tell, to say in the beginning you're very interested in the... The opening scene. The opening scene, okay, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, I think you're, you're, you're asking like what, what it actually was. Yeah? Yeah, so that's, um, I mean, what, what's called a kill site. It's a, it was an elk that was killed by wolves and, um, and it was out, out in a field where um, we had no access so we were only able to fly a drone out into the field to, um, to shoot it and um, um, yeah, that's what it is. I mean, in the winter in that area, you see these um, dead animals all over the place, really. She just want, she's saying that she was very entranced by the fact, and in part by the fact that the film is nonverbal and whether or not that was intentional. Um, well, I think as we were talking about earlier, the that there was an idea that dance would um, would be the language that that the characters speak, um, and so I mean I think that that dynamic establishes a lot of the um, the communication in my opinion. Um, you know there are scenes that are more typically narrative in the trailer I would say between the two characters there, but I think that the that the movement scenes um, 
create an, a kind of interconnectivity between um, uh, things that, that are happening out in the, in the landscape. And um, so, you know, yeah, for sure that was intentional, I think, from the beginning to use dance in that way and to uh, not use uh, spoken language. She's interested in the color in the film. I noticed it in Hunt 5 and 6, the color. What do you say? It was different or more vivid? More vivid. And um, so if you could comment on color in the film. Yeah. I mean, I think I was even surprised at how, um, you know, editing the piece, how it was almost like editing a black and white film um, for, for a lot of it, for those scenes that are outside and where the camouflage kind of blends into the, the background. So I think, um, I mean, it was certainly intentional to... Um, to give the hoop dancer a red sweatshirt, for example, um, and to bring more color into that scene. But um, 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 I think the, um, I think otherwise, um, I mean, what do you have in those two hunts? Blood, I suppose, and maybe the simulation of blood in that skinning dance that happens in the dark. and. Um, um, so in terms of the arc of the piece, I suppose the blood was sort of scripted to come late in the, in the, in the film. Um, but otherwise, I think it's that other aspect, which is how kind of unusually colorless it is, um, and that the only thing that really jumps is, is, is blood often in those, in those uh, dead carcasses and um, kill sites. Mm -hmm. Questions about the wolves at the end of the movie, basically. Um, I think that the the ending scene was was to do with um, you know leaving the the domestic dogs on the outside and letting the wolves come inside. That that kind of inversion, I think, was connected to some of the the sort of bigger questions I was uh, thinking about with. Uh, um, the sort of dualities in, that, that I think exist in that area um, and, and what the sort of notion of wilderness is and how, how much of that is a construction also and, and how much of it belongs to kind of romantic ideas that we've carried forward from European landscape painting. And um, um, so I think th those sort of, sort of general ideas, I think I was trying to get um, to bring some of that into that final scene with that kind of inversion. And uh, uh, the way we did it was with um, chicken juice. <laughs> we used it and we painted uh, chicken juice on the back of, of objects and, and inside of bedding. And um, um, they really loved it. <laughs> but they were, you know, those wolves were raised in captivity. I think that the alpha was not, and the others were all raised in captivity. So they were kind of easy to work with, actually. Um, although they weren't domestic, domesticated in any way, they, were, they responded to food. Questions about the music and how and when Jonathan Bepler gets brought into the project. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this one was done quite conventionally compared to other ways that we've worked together. The, the, the piece was cut and, and then given to him. Um, Although we certainly talked a lot about ideas while we were filming, and specifically the idea of 
how sound travels in that environment, like how you can have a sound that's quite far away um, have quite a lot of presence. Uh, it, it, it doesn't sound close to you, it still sounds very far away, but it's present. And um, so I think that was something that he was really interested in um, working with musically. And um, um, another thing that he did with this film that I thought was pretty interesting is he, um, he used a, a digital um, orchestral sounds or sampled or orchestra rather than, than recording uh, an orchestra, which is what he would normally do. And I think that came out of uh, these discussions about um, the kind of tactical language and the, the sort of technical um, equipment that sort of surrounds every kind of activity that you do in a landscape like that and, uh, and how sort of over-determined um, that can be. And I think it, it led him to want to make, um, to subtly kind of tweak things in into a kind of technical place um, and even create phrases that couldn't really be performed or sounds that couldn't be performed with a, an acoustic instrument. And um, which I thought was, it's subtle, but I think it's pretty effective. What was he watching and reading uh, in production? And uh, yeah, what were inspirations, I guess, reading and watching while making the film? Um, well, Maggie mentioned this essay that um, we both looked at um, by uh, William Cronin. Um, and uh, that was something, um, uh, writings on, um, how would you say it, sort of, um, I think that, that essay is called the, the um, do you remember the title of it? It's the, the I happen to have it written down right here. <laughs> See, it's called The Trouble with Wilderness or Getting Back to the Wrong Nature. Um, it's from 1995 and kind of, I mean, I think a kind of seminal and prescient piece about rethinking the idea of wilderness as something out there that, um, uh, as opposed to something um, that, that, that we look at rather than something that we can inhabit and work with. If that. Right, and that it needs to include the human right. factor yeah. and, uh, and that the idea of wilderness is kind of a, an invention that I think dove, somehow dovetails um, the notion of the sublime and the notion of frontier and, and the combination of those two ideas leads to this uh, invention of, 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 of a wilderness. And, um, and, I, and I think um, I was interested in that idea and, and looking for other people that were writing about that, that kind of idea as well as um, sort of looking more carefully at American West paintings. I was looking at a lot of those that have they've always baffled me a little bit. I realized that I didn't understand them at all, but that, that, um, that I think that they um, capture that, that um, kind of duality. I think the difference, for example, between American West paintings and the Northern Romantic paintings, European paintings, um, that the difference between them is really compelling to me. And I think those were some of the things I was looking at um, when I started this. Um, um, and of course, watching a lot of um, hunting videos <laughs> and, uh, and um, sharpshooters, YouTube channels and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's talking about, I won't go to the Silver Lake, although that's funny about the mug, but he's talking about just like, about, I guess, you know, right and left images of this kind of, uh, survivalist like prepping culture kind of merging, which I think is 
uh, I mean, even the Redoubt guy um, will say that many people, I mean, you know, there's a total deep ecology survivalist uh, movement that he'll even say are, you know, um, have been answering the call. So I think that what you're describing, um, I mean, not about the film per se, but in, in actual political life is, is true. But Matthew can talk to the film. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I understand what you're saying, I mean, I think that the thing that we haven't talked about is wolf reintroduction. And I think that that's something that um, I experienced as a teenager happening in, in Idaho and, and Wyoming. And, um, and, and that was something that so clearly divided the state politically. Or it was an example of something that showed how divided that state was. Um, uh, between a kind of uh, ecological perspective on on bringing wolves back and the um, sort of land use perspective, and um, and it was violent. Like those arguments were really violent, and I think um, that wasn't certainly another starting point for this. I think this is a story that's been kicking around for me for for a number of years, having sort of lived through that. Um, and how that played out in Idaho, I think I knew that I always wanted to sort of use this story somehow in a piece and to, um, to try to represent all aspects of it, um, although in a rather abstract way. Um, I didn't want to um, uh, make any sort of judgment about that um, that uh, question, which is still, it's still debated today in, in that area, even, even if the, the wolves have um, done really well, um, there's not a lot of, um, um, you know, I think, I think when, a, when a livestock, when livestock is killed, um, the, li the government pays for replacing the livestock. There's, I mean, they've sort of, come up with a lot of solutions for a lot of the problems that people have on either side of the, the debate, but, but it's still very, um, um, it still triggers a lot of anger in people. I guess we should say that the wolves were endangered, right? So they were mm -hmm. reintroduced to reestablish the population, and then once the population was reestablished, about, I don't know, a decade later, then hunting became legal again because there were enough of them. So um, maybe how about two more questions? That seemed good, Matthew. Mm -hmm. Okay, in the front row. Questions about ki uh, killing the animals, both the reaction in the audience and also whether or not the cougar and the um, wolf were killed. Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the that reaction myself. I think... Um, I mean, the answer is is that they were both dummies that were used. But um, um, in screenings, I think the first screening that we had, uh, which was at Yale University, and it was kind of in an environment where we thought, if 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 there's an environment where this is going to be a problem, this might be it. <laughs> so we put like a a board in front of the door that that had that language about how. Um, the, uh, those scenes were handled before people even entered the, the cinema. And, um, and I, haven't, I think we haven't done that since. And it, it reads at the end of the credits. So I think, um, I think it's, an, it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to, to the perceptions that people have, but um, that's how we did it. And 
those are the different ways that I've, I've handled it. I think there was what we had. Okay, maybe we'll do these two. Questions about the electroplating and is it a real process? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, it is. It's um, <clears throat> okay. So the the cop the plate is copper and the plate is uh, covered with uh, an asphalt medium, and then the engraving uh, cuts through the asphalt and exposes the copper. Right. So then you take that plate and you put it into an electroplating bath, which is um, sulfuric acid, and it has um, copper in solution. Um, and it also has a block of copper that uh, is suspended in the acid. So you take the plate, and you put it in that bath, and you have that block of copper in the bath, and you put two different poles of electricity um, on the the uh, cathode and the anode, the block and the, the plate. And that block of copper dissolves and is attracted to those lines that are exposed on the copper plate and it builds a positive where there was a negative. So it's a, it's real. <laughs> All right, last question, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. These questions about whether or not Matthew sees this as a mythical narrative, and also observing, I think that um, well, there's a message. Yeah, that maybe some of the the, the human lives and non-human lives or forces were put on a certain level of similarity. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm definitely interested. I think whether I'm working in the landscape or whether I'm working in an architectural situation, I'm definitely interested in trying to create a non-hierarchical relationship between the environment and the, um, the objects or people or characters within that environment. And, um, and so, um, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think there is a spiritual component to that for sure, if that's what you're asking. Um, but I also think there, it's a, it's a kind of a, uh, a, a challenge of, of, of transformation for me, you know, I think, to try to give objects agency and to give um, the environment agency that, um, that it might not typically have in a, um, in a moving image work or, in, um, um, or even in an installation situation. I think you can really feel that. Um, all right, thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theatres, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.